So we're continuing on to the next part of the story in Luke's Gospel um, in this sermon series called Open Invitation. And today, uh, it's a little bit of a unique invitation because we're going to get a significant turn in the narrative of Luke's Gospel as Jesus is now going to send these earliest followers, the 12 disciples, he's going to send them out and he is going to ask them to replicate his ministry. We're going to see them move from being merely pupils to being participants, and hence the title of the message today. So let's jump right in to Luke chapter 9, verses 1 through 9. When Jesus had called the twelve together, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. He told them, take nothing for the journey, no staff, no bag, no bread, no money, no extra shirt. Whatever house you enter, stay there. Until you leave that town. If people do not welcome you, leave their town and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. So they set out and went from village to village, proclaiming the good news and healing people everywhere. Now, Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was going on, and he was perplexed because some were saying that John had been raised from the dead, others that Elijah had appeared, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago had come back to life. But Herod said, I beheaded John. Who then is this I hear such things about? And he tried to see him. So if you notice at the beginning of the passage, um, as Jesus is getting ready to send out these disciples, there are a few sets of pairs that are built into the beginning of the passage that we read today. And these disciples, so far, they have merely been with Jesus. As pupils, they've been watching, they've been listening, they've been observing, and they have been learning. Now, they haven't really been asked yet by Jesus to become partners in the work that he is doing, although we know, and we remember they're told in Luke 5, when Jesus calls them, that I will what? Make you fishers of men, or you will fish for people. So we know eventually there's a time coming when they will be called into active ministry, not just as learners. And that's what we see happening in this passage today. It's a transition. And there's a few pairs that go together in this transition. What we see is a preview of what we will see on a larger scale in the book of Acts, when Jesus uh, and the Holy Spirit sends out a larger group of people to go from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. This is almost like the preview to the movie. It's the short version of what happens later, and it makes sense because Acts is part two of Luke. They go together. It's the sequel of Luke's gospel, essentially. So what does Jesus give them? Well, like I said, there are some pairs of things that go together. And the first one we're told is that he gives them both power and authority. Power and authority. In other words, they were given both the ability to do this work and the authorization to do this work. The power and the authority. I read one person this week who said they were given the might and the right to do the work that God had laid out in front of them, the ability and the authorization. And if you think about it, trying to accomplish work when you have only one of those two things is going to be ineffective and ultimately frustrating. Think in terms of a principal of a school or a manager of a retail store. If you, first of all, aren't given authority by someone higher up, then no matter your ability, no one's going to listen to you. You don't have the title. You don't have the authority to do the things that you want to accomplish. On the other hand, if you have the authorization, 
but not the ability, you will become a mistakenly confident leader who is still unable to make things work and lose the respect of those working with you. You need both power and authority. You need both ability and authorization. And Jesus provides both of these things. He is the higher-up authority that grants them the, uh, the, the uh, authorization to do it, but also empowers them. It is by Jesus' power that they are sent out to accomplish this great work that he has for them. And what is that work? It's another one of these pairs, because they are given this pair of assigned tasks. Proclaim the good news of the kingdom and bring people healing. The assigned healing, interestingly, of uh, the assigned ministry of healing itself has another set of pairs, driving out all demons and curing all diseases. So there's even another pair of things that go with the pair of preaching the good news and healing those who are in need. We have seen Jesus heal lots of people already in Luke's gospel. We've only been through eight chapters, but Jesus has healed on many occasions, many different kinds of people in many different kinds of circumstances. And His healings bring relief to them, whether it's physical relief because they suffer from a physical need, or maybe it's spiritual relief if they they are suffering from some sort of demonic oppression, or even emotional or social relief. We just looked recently at the, the story of the woman with the issue of blood who touches the cloak of Jesus, and not only is she physically healed, she's able to be socially restored back to those relationships that she had been severed from for like 12 years. Jesus' miracles have brought relief to so many people. But those incidents of healing were never intended to just have their effects limited to those joyful recipients of the miracles. They were ultimately evidence to the presence of the kingdom that's being proclaimed by Jesus at the same time. The disciples are being told to do what Jesus has done to both declare and demonstrate the gospel the kingdom, declare and demonstrate, right? And that led me sort of to this question. Is this kind of sending that Jesus is doing, is this intended for all Christians in all times and all places? Or is this kind of sending for Christians that have specific gifts and specific callings for particular times and particular places? Which one is it? And if you know me, you'd know my answer. I think it's a little bit of both that's happening here. So let's start with specifics. I still believe that there are, so, there are still some followers of Jesus who are specifically called and then sent into places that are not their homes in order to proclaim the good news of the kingdom, often to people who have never heard it before. And today we call those people missionaries. We still have a term for them. So are there still people that are specifically called to mission work? Yes. And many of them are also specifically gifted with evangelism in order to do the work of a missionary. And if you hear missionary stories, you know that their work is often accompanied by a higher incidence of miraculous signs than average. You hear some of these missionary stories, the things that happen while they're proclaiming the good news, they are wild, wild things. So are there specific Christians called with a specific calling and specific gifts to go to specific places at specific times? Yes, but that does not mean, that does not mean that Christians who don't have a specific calling as a missionary or a specific gift of evangelism don't also receive power and authority from Jesus. We are all called to be witnesses 
and ambassadors. You may not be called as a missionary. You may not have the gift of evangelism. But guys, each one of us in Christ receives the power and authority that he has to share with us to accomplish his good work. We are all called in some capacity to proclaiming and to healing. Now, by proclaiming, that might look different with different kinds of people. I don't believe that you are all called to be public proclaimers of the good news of the kingdom. But St. Francis is attributed to this quote where he talks about, preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. And it's a powerful quote, because it teaches us that sometimes sharing the gospel is as much about what we do than the words that we share, which matches, matches up with Matthew 5, that people might see our good deeds and therefore do what? Glorify our Father in heaven. Sometimes that's what proclaiming looks like. And listen, do, do miraculous healings and, and demonic deliverance, is that impossible for the average Christian? No. I tend to believe God kind of does whatever he wants, wherever he wants, through whomever he wants, however he wants. So I'd, I still believe that God is able to do all those things. I also think that we are all called to healing in some capacity. For instance, Proverbs talks about the fact that even just kind words can be healing to people's souls. You may not be able to drive out demons or lay your hands on the sick and bring them healing, but every single one of us is capable of giving kind words to people when their souls need to be healed. So sometimes it's specific people, but it's also a calling for all of us. Jesus sends us all out. And it's true also of the way Jesus instructed them to prepare for the journey. I think it has something to teach to these first 12 disciples. It's, it still teaches us about a missionary lifestyle today, but I think it also teaches all of us Christians about everyday attitudes. And Jesus tells them to pack light. Pack light. Which led me to this question that I'm going to confront all of you with. What kind of packer are you? It's really hard to be like a right-on sort of packer. If you have mastered that and from every trip you return home and go, oh, it was perfect. I used everything I packed. I didn't need one thing more. Then I need to learn from you. I think it's really, some of us are Light packers, other us are not as light of packers. And listen, I have to speak to this. Those of you who are light packers, listen, I don't want to confront you too hard, but there's a little pride that goes along with that. You need to check yourselves a little bit. Well, like, oh, well, I'm a light packer. And then you look with disdain at those with overflowing suitcases and go, oh, wow. Right? So let's just get that out into the open. I read a, a, an article on a website this week that says that there might be up to eight different kinds of packers. I'm just going to hit you with four this morning, right? So here we go. First of all, I read about the minimalist. The minimalist packs the fewest pieces of clothing possible, color-coordinating them so they can be worn and reworn in different combinations, and is also able to limit to just one pair of shoes that goes with everything. Their packing skills border on the magical. Some of you might be minimalists. Then there's the overpacker. The overpacker packs as if every trip were a move across the country. This packer considers every circumstance and packs accordingly. Will it rain? Doesn't matter because the overpacker has both an umbrella and a raincoat. 
Will they finally hit the hotel gym this time around? Maybe, so I better pack three workout outfits and two pairs of sneakers. They need daytime outfits, nighttime outfits, and at least three times as many underwear as there are days in the trip. And they usually wear about half of what they pack in their suitcase. Then there's the planner. The planner has everything neatly packed away well in advance of their departure date. Like days, weeks, maybe months. Some of you are like already mentally planning to pack for your summer vacation probably. The planner makes a thorough list and has everything they could possibly need for a trip due to their organizational prowess. They're the the person that if on the trip you need gum or a band-aid or an extra hair tie, you go to this person. They always have the entertainment for long flights and long car rides, and they're usually a very neat packer with everything fitting perfectly folded in their organized suitcase. And then there's the last-minute packer. This packer is a risk-taker. Like a game show contestant rallying against a ticking clock, they work down to the last possible second to gather what they need. Throw random shirts and pants into a suitcase, grab a toothbrush and toothpaste, run out the door to frantically catch the taxi, the bus, or the plane. This packer is bound to forget something, usually something major. For instance, a bathing suit if it's a beach vacation, or a nice outfit if there's a fancy dinner. Sometimes underwear are the thing that just gets left behind. The last-minute packer gambles with quick decisions and the lack of planning. So often, they have to shell out a few dollars to buy what they have forgotten. It's usually not a big deal, but it also means when they're not traveling, they own more bathing suits than they could ever possibly need because they purchased one every time they went anywhere. I don't know what speaks to you, but when Jesus spoke to his disciples, he said, "'Take nothing for the journey.'" No staff, no bag, no bread, no money, no extra shirt. This is like the ultimate minimalist. Don't bring anything with you at all. Very strange. Go on a trip, take nothing. So what do we learn from this? The first thing I think is that this kind of packing would foster a trust in God's provision. We've talked and sung about God's provision today. And it's not an easy transformation to go from the feeling of being vulnerable, of having nothing extra, to trusting that God will provide. It's a process, and we're all on that journey in different places, understanding that when we don't have, that that is how we learn to trust in God's provision. I do find it really interesting that the very next story in Luke's gospel, if you looked ahead, you know that it's the story of the feeding of the 5,000, where the provision of God is just lit up like a Christmas tree, like it is the thing that's on display. I wonder if they went and did this and came back with stories about learning to trust in God's provision. But this kind of packing also would force them to rely on the hospitality of other people. Now, some of this is particular to their culture and to their time. I read this week that Jewish travelers depended on hospitality, and Jewish folks customarily would extend that hospitality to them, no questions asked. Even during times of high travel, like during feasts in Jerusalem, there was no payment expected of fellow Jews who needed a place to stay. Although interesting, over over time, there was the development in the rabbinic literature that hammered out some details and expectations for ghosts. Ghosts. (laughs) Not ghosts. (laughs) Guests and hosts. 
There, there may be some rabbinic literature on ghosts. That is not what I read this week, though. I will look into it. But they ended up writing about expectations of guests and hosts because of the way things were working. For instance, they, one of the things they wrote were practical suggestions for handling a burdensome guest not too anxious to leave. That's such a great phrase. A burdensome guest who's not too anxious to leave. But this kind of hospitality was baked into their culture in a way that it's not in ours today. We sometimes will travel and stay with family, but a lot of times we're getting a hotel or an Airbnb or something like that. But it's also true that staying in the homes provided a primary place to do what? Exactly what Jesus had told them to do, to share about the good news of the kingdom. As you stay in that home, guess what? There's your first audience for sharing. And then if they, it's a place that you are welcomed, that can become a home base by which you could then go out to other homes in the village or in the town. That got me thinking this week, it's, we live in different cultural times, different contexts, but are we entering into relationships with people that foster a sense of mutual hospitality that give us opportunities to share the good news of the kingdom? And what does that look like today? Lastly, the sense of packing is also in line with the friend's testimony of simplicity. I've been saturated in the testimonies lately. I'm helping out with some work on the denominational level with reorganizing our current testimony, so it's on my brain a lot. And I really love how this command by Jesus to pack light, as in nothing, is really, it lines up with our friend's, historical friend's testimony about living simply. How often does the management of our possessions distract us from the beauty and the importance of the kingdom of God? And it, it, it's, first of all, obvious that affluence and overabundance, of course, but even just stewarding a proper healthy amount of our household needs, it takes time and it takes energy. And beyond the physical things that we need to manage, I started to think this week, now we also have to manage a litany of subscriptions that we now have in our lives. Do you have any idea how many things you are subscribed to? I started to think through them all. There are so many. It is the model by which nearly everything operates now. You don't just buy something one time and call it good. You buy into a subscription service. It was not long ago the only two things you subscribed to were newspapers and magazines. That's it. Now, I mean, just think, I can't even name all of the streaming entertainment options that exist that you can subscribe to, that every month, whether it's your bank account or your credit card, you just get hit with that ongoing monthly rate because you are subscribed to that thing. But it goes beyond that. We can subscribe to meal prep kits that just get delivered to our doors. We can subscribe to laundry soap. I even subscribe to getting my razors and shaving cream through the mail. And if you would have told me 30 years ago that people would be subscribing to get razors and shaving cream through the mail, it would have been laughable. It's one of the easiest things that you can find at any store that you stumble across. And living simply is a testimony that's not just about our physical stuff, but also all these things that we have to manage because the more we're managing them, the more we're distracted from the most important things. Living simply allows us to value the things above more than the earthly things and the ways that they can distract us. And Jesus' command to pack lightly, I think, is in line with that testimony. 
And so he sends them off. But before he does, just before he does, there's an interesting bit of advice regarding the people, the homes, the villages that might reject the message of the kingdom. What to do if you are rejected. And interestingly, Jesus says, what you need to do is shake the dust from your feet. An interesting phrase, right? If you feel rejected, shake the dust. It's as if Jesus might be saying, in other words, you guys just need to keep on cruising. You can't stop, you won't stop moving. Like you've got this message in your minds saying it's going to be all right. And sometimes the haters are going to hate, 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 hate. And you just got to shake, 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 shake it off. I'm not even sorry. I'm not even sorry. This, I, as soon as I was thinking about shaking it off, this is what came into my brain. I'm so glad that my daughter's helping in the nursery. She'd be so embarrassed of me or, or for me, one of the two. But uh, uh, do you know how many times this song has been played on YouTube? You don't, and I'm going to tell you. 3.2 billion times with a B is how many times it has been played. Shake it off. What is Jesus talking about when he says, shake the dust off your feet? He's essentially, in their language, saying, you can treat these Jewish cities or villages that reject you as if they are unclean, pagan cities. Because the way it worked in their culture and time is if you traveled outside of the Holy Land and then came back, you would literally try and shake off all the dust that you had accumulated, not wanting to bring something unclean back into your clean places. It was even more so for the temple. Because even though you walked around the Holy Land and hadn't been outside of it for days, weeks, or months, when you came to the temple, you would again try and shake off anything you brought in because it was such a holy place you were entering into. And so Jesus says, if they reject you, shake the dust off your feet as a way to communicate what they're doing to themselves in their rejection. After visiting the beach, I always feel like I can't get all the sand off. It's impossible like to just shake off all the sand. They tried to shake off everything so they wouldn't carry it over back into their places of holiness. The plans and the purposes, though, of God's kingdom, they will continue to move along even without those who reject the message of the kingdom. And it can be disappointing When the good news is rejected, it can be heartbreaking when the good news of the kingdom is rejected. But guys, the Holy Spirit continues to move and to lead, and we need to continue to follow. What's interesting is the shaking off of that dust that Jesus is recommending is not to be done in anger or indignation as if like shaking a fist in rejection. Because when Jesus realizes that Jerusalem has rejected him and he looks over the city, what does he do? Does he shake a fist? He weeps. He mourns. He recognizes the rejection, but he weeps and mourns over it instead. And so the disciples follow Jesus in his instruction. They go. They preach. They heal. They bring freedom to people. And word gets around about what's happening. The obedience of the twelve Empowered by Jesus, gets all the way to Herod the Tetrarch, and we read that he becomes perplexed. Perplexed, it's a fun Greek word. It's diaporeo. There's an intensity to it. It's the idea of being thoroughly convinced that there's no solution. There's no way out. 
Herod is so perplexed, he cannot figure out what is going on, how and why. I think part of the reason he's perplexed is the fact that some people are suggesting this is John the Baptist come back from the dead. And listen, if I'm Herod, that's, a, that's bad news because I'm the one responsible for his beheading. But he cannot figure out what is going on. He's perplexed. And yet, by the very end of the passage today, what do we read? He still wanted to see Jesus. He was perplexed. He was confused. He couldn't explain it. He didn't know what was going on. And yet, he still wanted to see Jesus. I'm convinced that the activity of those disciples, empowered and commissioned by Jesus, created curiosity within Herod. Which I think means, even today, that the Spirit-empowered, good news-proclaiming, healing-seeking, freedom-bestowing believers and followers of Jesus, we should be creating curiosity for those who see and hear. We should be making more people perplexed. Now, not all people. There are some people who will reject the kingdom invitation, but there are other people who might say, I need to see Jesus. And guys, we have no control over the outcome. None. You have no control over when you are shaking the dust from your feet. You have no control about those who are perplexed enough to ask enough questions that they may want to see Jesus. I think Herod represents somebody who has a really complicated past with Jesus through John. And yet, even with his complicated past, he has heard and seen enough that he goes, I need to see Jesus and to know more. Which leads to this final quote I want to share with you. The key question Luke wants the readers to ask, who is this Jesus? By recording the current speculation on the identity of Jesus and placing that question on the lips of someone as important as Herod, Luke brings the question of Jesus' identity to the center of attention. And when we read the gospel story again, it does the same thing again today. Who is this Jesus and what will you do with him? Are you perplexed enough to come close? Are you already empowered with his power and authority and ready to go out and do the kind of ministry that he calls us to do? So uh, just a few ways to pray and reflect and think through maybe some responses to what we have read together today. Here's the first one. Do you believe that you have been given power and authority by Jesus to share the good news of the kingdom, to pray for healing, to proclaim freedom? Wherever you're at on that journey, ask God today to grow your confidence in Him and how He has given you power and authority. Second, in what ways are you living life simply and in what ways are you overpacking your life? And then lastly, pray that our lives individually and as a church would create more curiosity and those around us about the identity and the importance of Jesus. So I'm going to flip through those one more time. We're going to have a moment of silence and reflection. I hope that something on the screen will grab at your heart, allow you to reflect during this time of silence, and I'm going to finish it up in just a moment with a closing prayer.